You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. This week, we continue our series on John the Baptist. Let's check it out. Good morning, Word of Life. So glad that you're able to come and be a part of service today. So glad that you're able to be here and that you made church a priority this weekend. And I hope that this morning is refreshing, uplifting, encouraging, and a blessing. If you were here yesterday or Thursday night to be a part of church cleanup, I cannot thank you enough for the hard work that went in. Didn't the property look wonderful this morning? Like no leaves around or anything? Looked awesome. So... Massive appreciation to everybody. Um, Coincidentally, Mike Chiz was not able to be here. He was away at a wedding, and uh, it's the first time in 40 years that he has not been a part of a church cleanup day, and it's amazing how much more we were able to accomplish without him being there (laughs) to slow us down. Well, we're, uh, we're right in the middle of a series that we've started looking at the life of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is a well-known biblical figure. He's a great hero from the Bible. And I was thinking back uh, a little while ago, a few months ago at this point, and sort of weighing up, I couldn't remember a, a single time I'd heard a sermon, let alone a series, looking at the life of John the Baptist. And yet he really is a great biblical hero. He's a great person mentioned in the scriptures many, many times. And it's someone that's pointed to as being a great person of the faith. And yet I couldn't think of a single time I heard someone examine and look at and explore his life and what we can learn from that. And this is what Jesus had to say about John the Baptist as we weigh all this up. This in Luke 7, in verse 28, I tell you, Jesus talking, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John. So in Jesus' words, this is the greatest person that had ever lived. So that gave me reason to think this is worth taking the time, digging in, and looking at the life of this man and what it can mean for us as we look to him as someone that Jesus described as the greatest person who's ever lived. Week one, we looked at three passages in the Old Testament that promised a forerunner that would come before the Messiah to prepare people for his arrival. Hundreds of years after the prophets wrote about John the Baptist, hundreds of years before he was born, they were, he was to prepare people for the coming Messiah. It was John that prepared people to listen to the message of Jesus, the true Messiah. It was John that prepared people to choose following God over anything else. John prepared people to change, not just to hear the good news, but also to respond and let their lives be shaped by the message of Jesus. And then into week two, we considered the birth of John the Baptist, the miraculous circumstances around his birth. And at the core of the story, as Luke tells it, is that God exceeds expectations. As we looked at the the story of of John's miraculous birth, we could see, and we looked at it a few weeks ago, just how God exceeded expectations. And then last week, Pastor Lisa, if you were here, it was a wonderful message, asking the question of why baptism? She looked carefully at what it meant for John the Baptist to start water baptizing people 2,000 years ago. And Pastor Lisa shared with us that baptism is a call to repentance. Baptism is a symbol of belonging. Baptism points to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and baptism is an act of surrender. And for today, as we get into week four, we're going to look at some moments in the life of John the Baptist, some of the conversations that he had, some of the things that he said, and what we can learn from that. And we're going to be in the book of John, and the book of John is written by John the Apostle, and sometimes it's known as the fourth gospel or even just the book of John. And it's written by John the Apostle, and he's writing about John the Baptist. So we have two different Johns to get our heads wrapped around. But I'm going to be starting in John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word is a way that John describes Jesus. The Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created. 
and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, This is the one I was talking about when I said, Someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. From his abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Now that passage of scripture, it's, it's dense. It's a dense passage of scripture. There's a lot of important stuff there. The opening passage from John's gospel, which we just read, is the subject of many books. Even college courses will look in depth at everything that I just read to you in just a few moments. It's in this passage that we read about Jesus being divine in nature. That Jesus is eternal and he existed before the creation of the world. That he is the source of life. Jesus came to bring light, but the world didn't recognize him and even rejected him. But all who believe in him, all who believe in Jesus, are given the right to be called children of God. In him, we receive grace upon grace. Now in this introduction from John the Apostle, we're also told about the man that we're currently learning about, John the Baptist. A couple of verses here from verse 8. John the Baptist himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And then down to verse 15. John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I was talking about when I said someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. Now, one of the standout qualities of John the Baptist is his humility. John understood and was comfortable that he was subordinate to Jesus. John was sent as a forerunner to the Messiah. He was sent to prepare people, and that was his entire life's purpose. His entire life's mission was to point people towards the Messiah. It's so dramatic and it's so essential that if he were alive today, I think that it would bother him that history remembers him at all. His whole life was consumed by pointing other people to Jesus, by pointing people to someone that wasn't himself. And the fact that we even know his name, I believe, would bother John because he was so committed to pointing people to Jesus and not himself. The impression I get reading the Gospels is that John would rather there be nothing written about him, that history books don't mention his name. John wouldn't call himself a great hero, but rather his desire is that people's focus and attention would have gone to Jesus and Jesus alone. And while Jesus may have said that John is the greatest person to have ever lived, which is what we read a few moments ago, I think John would have been far more comfortable with what John the Apostle wrote. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. Without John's strong core of humility, I don't believe he could have achieved what the Lord had for him. 
We typically agree that humility is a positive quality for somebody. Even if it's not something we think about for ourselves, it's something we value in other people. But we might be mistaken in thinking that humility, or what we would say is humble, can be described as being quiet, or off in the corner somewhere, or observing, or a lowly position. We may think that humility or being humble is inferior. Many times we might confuse with humility, with timidity, or frailty. As we can see from the example of John the Baptist, being humble does not mean being passive or weak. And the first thing I'd ask you to write down if you're taking notes today, and the main thought for us this morning is that John the Baptist is a role model in bold humility. John the Baptist is a role model in bold humility. And we're going to continue looking further at the portion of Scripture from John's Gospel. What's obvious to see is that John the Baptist is humble to his very core. But his humility does not make him weak or fragile, but rather he's shown to be a bold man. And that bold humility made an enormous difference. A definition for humility I was able to find this week in a dictionary I have is that humility is the personal quality of being free from arrogance and pride and having an accurate estimate of one's worth. This definition, it describes arrogance and pride as negatives. And those attributes, they thrive in an inaccurate view of ourselves. It's such an ugly attribute that we can see in other people. And the most extreme example I can think about is when the rich and the famous will harass and bully the staff that work with them. I've heard numerous horror stories of celebrities being whiny, angry, and demanding brats. And they do all that behind closed doors, but as soon as the cameras roll, they're all smiles and nice as pie. Stories of celebrity divas is so off-putting to us. It's also ugly on a high school sports team when someone thinks they're the next big thing and they start acting like it. It's also off-putting when someone expects everyone in the room to give them attention and doesn't think twice when they steamroll over everybody. It's also ugly when the boss starts demanding special privileges. It's ugly when people just think they know it all. And too often we look at humility as having a lowly, weak, inferior view of ourselves. But the definition that I just read says that we should have an accurate estimation of our worth. An accurate estimation of our worth typically means that we're decent to people that aren't going to get us ahead in our life goals. An accurate estimation of ourselves normally means that we don't have an ego that's shattered easily. It means that we're not demanding our own way, but instead we're considerate of those around us. That we're honorable when it's time to compete against others. Our example from John that we'll look at today, the kind of humility that he displays is bold and sincere. There's nothing weak or pitiful about true humility. John was not a doormat and he wasn't a coward, but as a humble and faithful servant of God, he played a significant role in the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus has changed the world and continues to change the world. So we're gonna continue in John's gospel where we started. So we're gonna go on to verse 19. This was John's testimony. This is talking about John the Baptist. When the Jewish leaders sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask John, who are you? Who are these people that are questioning John? Who are these people that are putting these questions to him? What we just read is that there have been some Jewish leaders and they've sent some priests and temple assistants to go and start grilling John about what it is exactly that he's up to. It appears that some of the influential religious leaders in Jerusalem have started hearing all about what John's up to in the wilderness. They've started to hear that John's gathered a crowd, that he's preaching messages about repentance and he's baptizing people in the river and they want to know, the officials from the temple want to know what's going on. We spent a decent amount of time in the past few weeks looking at the high level of expectation, 
that the people had in the first century that the Messiah was going to come. They didn't have all the answers about when and how, but the messianic hope for this people, the Jewish people, was very, very strong. And they were desperate. They believed that this messianic deliverer, somebody coming, the Messiah finally coming, was going to help them break free from the oppression of the Roman Empire. It's not out of the blue that these people would wonder if John, who was gathering crowds and preaching in an unusual way and baptizing massive numbers of people, it's not unusual that they would wonder, is this man the Messiah? On the other hand, they were trying to figure out if John was a political disruptor. John had gathered a crowd. He was causing a stir. And the question of, is this whole thing going to boil over and is it going to start creating problems with the Romans is a very real question on their minds. The whole society at this point was balanced on a knife edge. If John wasn't Messiah, was he a troublemaker? Essentially, this group of people that have come from Jerusalem to find out more from John the Baptist have got some questions. Is this guy the Messiah that we should follow, or is he a problem that we need to deal with? And this is how this all came about. Verse 20, John talking here, he came right out and said, I am not the Messiah. Well then, who are you? They asked, are you Elijah? No, he replied. Are you the prophet we are expecting? No. Now, we just read about three people. John is saying, I am not. John is saying, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. And I'm not the prophet. Now, there would have been many people ready to accept that John was the Messiah. It was a common question that we can see this throughout the Gospels, that people wanted to know, is John the Baptist the Messiah? It was easy for people to imagine, this is the kind of person the Messiah is going to be. Someone that's gathering in the crowd, someone that's stirring something. This is going to be the Messiah. It's one of the ways that we can see in the Gospels of how eager people were for the Messiah to come is that everybody is just ready for them to be here and they're hoping that John's their guy. It's not unusual that people would ask this question, are you the Messiah? But John's saying that he's not Elijah, that's an interesting question. For John, why would he say he's not Elijah? We're gonna, this is really this thought here of, why, you know, are you Elijah? And John's saying no, this is what got me started on this whole question this week of why would he say no to that? That's kind of what led me to this whole thought about humility is why would John say no to being Elijah? I would have expected him to say yes. We spent a long time in week one of this series looking at a prophecy written by Malachi 400 years before John was born. And it tells us that God would send the prophet Elijah as a forerunner to the Messiah. At the moment of John's birth, his father Zechariah exclaims, he will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. In the Gospels, it's clear that John is the one fulfilling this prophecy. So why is John answering no? And this question, it led me to see the exemplary humility in John. Now, the technical answer of why John would say no is that the typical assumption of the time was that Elijah would appear as some kind of reincarnation. The people that were expecting the actual Old Testament hero, Elijah, to come and live among them. That's how the promise in Malachi had been widely misunderstood at the time, that the appearance of Elijah would be a reincarnation or a kind of reappearance. And while John is clearly not a reincarnation of Elijah or a reappearance of Elijah himself, he carries a similar calling. As Zechariah, John's father, says, the same spirit and power. And there's a part of me that wonders why John didn't respond to the question, are you Elijah, with something like, not in the way you're expecting, but I am a fulfillment of that promise. Why did he answer no instead of affirmatively? It would have been honest, but John doesn't correct them. He doesn't clarify. They want to know if he's the reappearance of Elijah the prophet, and he simply replies, no, I'm not. And the group from Jerusalem has a third option of who they think John may be. They ask him if he is the prophet. 
And this goes back over a thousand years before John was born to the time of Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, I will raise up a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell the people everything I command him. And John says, no, I'm not that guy either. Now what I realized after thinking and studying this passage a lot this week and asking the question specifically about Elijah, why is he so quick to say no instead of saying yes with caveats? This is all about rejecting praise. This is John rejecting praise. The Messiah, Elijah, the prophet Moses wrote about, they are three people that this group of religious experts, they were people that they looked up to, they respected, they honored, they revered these people. The three people that they asked John about are people they would have showered with adoration and respect, and John wanted no part of it. Jesus is both the Messiah and the prophet Moses wrote about, and John would have been lying if he would have said yes to those questions. But the Elijah thing is interesting because he could have clarified where they were wrong. He could have let them bestow this title upon him. And if he would have, the doors would have swung open for love and applause and celebrity status. But he didn't. He could have received respect and admiration and possibly legitimized his ministry. He could have gotten some good press and endorsement from the temple leaders, but that was never what John was about. He was never about elevating John, but about pointing people to Jesus. It carries on verse 22. Then who are you? We need an answer for those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? John replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am a voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. And this verse from Isaiah, as we've spoken about already in this series, it was in all four gospels. And it confirms the ministry and the role that John the Baptist plays in ushering in the Messiah. John is consumed with preparing people so that they were ready, not for his benefit, but because Jesus is coming. It goes on, verse 24. Then the Pharisees who have been sent asked him, if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, what right do you have to baptize? And notice that John does not answer their question. John told them, I baptize with water, but right here in the crowd is someone you do not recognize. Though his ministry follows mine, I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandal. John doesn't ask them the question, what right do you have to baptize? But instead, he takes the attention off of himself. It reads, at least to me, like he's getting frustrated that they keep putting the spotlight on him when his entire life is about putting the spotlight on Jesus. To illustrate how amazing Jesus is, John says that he's not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandal. I read this this week. I thought it was helpful to share with you. John underlines his own humble status in comparison with the coming one by saying that he is unfit even to perform such a lowly service as untying the sandal strap for him. Every service which a slave performs for his master, said one rabbi from the third century AD, a disciple will perform for his teacher, except to untie his sandal strap. Even that menial service, John thought himself unworthy to perform on the coming one. But in fact, in preparing the way for that coming one, John was discharging a far more honorable ministry than any of his hearers could have realized. And in verse 28, this encounter took place in Bethany, an area east of the Jordan River where John was baptizing. Now, if you were uh, to get on a plane and go over to the UK, um, you will have a very welcome, hospitable home at my parents' house. If you're ever there, you can just go stay. They won't mind. 
And my parents still live in the house where I grew up. And if you go to my dad's study, there is a floor-to-ceiling bookcase. And on that bookcase, I don't know how many hundreds of books there are. There may even be thousands. But the, uh, one of the collections that my dad has is a book of writings by a guy called Charles Spurgeon. Many of you may know Charles Spurgeon. He was preaching in London a few hundred years ago. And my dad's got a bunch of his, uh, his writings, a bunch of his books. And um, he's never asked me about it, so I'm going to guess that he's never looked at that collection too closely in the last 18 years, because one of those books is missing. <laughs> now, Dad, you're probably watching church online today. I don't know where it is. Um, it's not in my office, which makes me think I didn't bring it with me to America, so it's at least in the same country as you. Probably. But the book that I took from my dad and never put back was by Charles Spurgeon. It was called Great Man of the Bible. And John the Baptist is one of the people featured in Spurgeon's book. And one of the points that Spurgeon made that I read, you know, must be 17, 18 years ago now that has stuck with me, is that Spurgeon pulled the two scriptures together of Jesus saying, John is the greatest person that's ever lived. And then John saying about himself, I'm not even worthy to undo the straps of his sandals. For Jesus to say, out of everyone that's ever lived, John's the best. But for John to think of himself, I'm not even worthy to do the kind of thing you don't even like to have slaves doing. Like, I, I'm nothing. That just shows the humility that's at the core of this man. His estimation of himself. He wasn't driven by ego. He wasn't driven by his own glory. The greatest person that ever lived honestly believes he's not worthy to be Jesus' slave. And that tells us something about his humility. Now, if we conflate humility and being humble with being weak or intimidated, that's not the example we see in John the Baptist. For John to fulfill what God has called him to do, humility was an essential quality, but it's not the only quality. And we're going to continue walking through John 1, and there's three character qualities that John exhibits that we might not typically associate with humility or being humble. It's helpful for us to grab a hold of this today. The first thing that we see from John is he's humble but confident. Humble but confident. When questioned by this group that had come up from Jerusalem, John was confident enough to point to the verse in Isaiah that describes his mission. But he rejected the celebrity status of being mistaken for the reincarnated Elijah. John was confident to stand his ground when grilled by a group of influential, powerful, respectable members of the ruling class. But his confidence wasn't in himself. His confidence didn't drive him to seek fame and glory. But his confidence kept him sturdy. What he was fulfilling was God's call. He was being obedient, and he kept pointing people to Jesus. John was humble, but confident. Go on, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I said, A man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, John exclaiming that Jesus is the Lamb of God is interesting. For one thing, the Lamb is not a typical sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. In the temple system of sacrifice that's laid out in the Old Testament, it's a system that was current and active when John and Jesus were ministering. And there were many different sacrifices that were made for many different reasons. But a Lamb was not typical for a sin offering. But there's two important places in the Old Testament that involve a lamb that come to mind when John says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to describe Jesus. The first one I want to draw attention to is Isaiah 53. This was written 700 years before this moment. 
But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And as the sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. It was about a year and a half ago now. We spent five weeks looking at Isaiah 53. Anybody remember that? It was about a year and a half ago now. The New Testament authors, they're quick to confirm that this passage of Scripture, written 700 years earlier, is indeed talking about Jesus. And the whole passage, including the verses that we just read, it points to a servant who would be beaten and killed to pay the price of others. And it's described as a lamb that's led to the slaughter. Another passage that comes to mind from the Old Testament that I believe John is pointing us to comes from the book of Exodus. And it's talking about the Passover where the Israelite slaves were finally freed from Egypt and slavery in Egypt. Each Passover lamb must be eaten in one house. Do not carry any of its meat outside and do not break any of its bones. The Passover lamb, it was eaten moments before the whole family packed up and left slavery in Egypt once and for all. It was eaten moments. It was part of the the ritual that God commanded them to do before they were to leave their home, get to the Red Sea, watch an ocean part in two in front of them and walk through on dry ground into freedom. And the Passover, that moment of, of, of God enabling his people to go into freedom is one of the cornerstone moments of the Old Testament. It's a key moment in biblical history. And this meal was ceremonially eaten every year to remember the freedom from slavery. By pointing to Jesus as the Lamb of God, he's inviting people, including us, to join the dots. That Jesus is the servant described in Isaiah 53, and that he will take away the sin of the world. And by describing Jesus as a lamb, it compares him to the Passover lamb, which was the most significant symbol of freedom. John is pointing people to the ultimate work of Jesus on the cross, the forgiveness and freedom from sin. That we no longer have to live as spiritual slaves that the price we owe and could never pay, Jesus, the Lamb of God, will pay it all. Verse 32, then John testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. I didn't know he was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. Now, John was faithful in baptizing people as a sign of repentance. John was faithful in inviting people to make a commitment to follow God with everything. But here, John is telling the crowd that there is a greater baptism that's coming, that Jesus will baptize in the Holy Spirit. John continues being confident that he should be baptizing people in water, but he's certain that the work of the Holy Spirit that followers of Jesus will experience is even greater. And I don't want to hurry past this and, and skip on to something else without highlighting this is another Old Testament theme that John is bringing to our minds. Ezekiel 36, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. And for us today, as we consider the example we get from John, from this portion, we see that John was humble, but active. John was humble, but active. Verse 31, I have been baptizing with water. Verse 34, I testified that he is the chosen one of God. 
I've been baptizing crowds of people. I've been testifying and preaching about repentance in Jesus. This example from John is that he's not passive, sitting on the sidelines. John is not the kind of person that's just waiting for life to happen. Humility is not taking yourself out of the game. Humility is not waiting for life to just happen to you. Humility is not drifting along day after day. Humility is not watching someone else take responsibility for the things God has asked you to be responsible for. Humility is not passive or disengaged, but true humility is active. For John to be faithful, he had to get going and fulfill his calling. Someone being humble and just getting themselves out of the way is not what we see from John. Was he humble? Undoubtedly. But he preached and taught many people about the coming day of the Lord. He had an incredible level of humility, but he was probably exhausted from baptizing crowds of people. John was humble, but he was certainly active. Verse 35, the following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Now, it's amazing to me that not only was John able to gather a crowd, but he was also able to gather disciples. John had gathered people that made an incredible commitment that they were going to follow John. They were going to learn from him. They wanted to be a part of what he was doing. They were hoping to lead ministry very similar to what he was doing. John was a crazy man on the backside of the desert. John was a wild guy. John was not like anything you'd expect. And yet people saw something in him that made him want to get so close that they wanted to mirror and mimic what he was doing. Verse 38, Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want? He asked them. They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Come and see. He said it was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. Now, make a mental note here that Andrew was one of John the Baptist's disciples before he followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, your name is Simon, son of John, but you'll be called Cephas, which means Peter. So here we have John the Baptist, Andrew, and then Peter. Peter would, of course, go on to be one of Jesus' key disciples. It was Peter that stood up on the day of Pentecost and explained to a crowd of 3,000 people who Jesus was. Peter would be known as a pillar of the early church. Peter would be instrumental in the launch of churches all over the world. God would use Peter to write two books of the New Testament. The strong leadership from the early church meant that the message of Jesus spread and has kept spreading for 2,000 years and will keep spreading until the end of time. It's not an exaggeration to say that every follower of Jesus in history has been directly or indirectly affected by the work of Peter. That's the extent that God has used him. And it started because John the Baptist pointed Andrew to Jesus. Andrew then pointed his brother Peter to Jesus. Peter then pointed the early church to Jesus. And the early church has pointed every church that has come afterwards to Jesus. This chain reaction started with John and his disciple Andrew. I'm going to point you to Jesus. Andrew, in turn, I'm going to point my brother, Peter, to Jesus. And Peter, then rising up after three years of working with Jesus, I'm going to point just about everybody I can ever imagine to Jesus. And God has used Peter to change the world. And that brings us to the third thing. John the Baptist, humble but important. Humble 
but important. John was doing important work. John was doing life-changing work. What he did mattered. What he gave his life for made a difference for many, many people. Right in the beginning, there was a call for humanity to do important work. Back in Genesis, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. To fill the earth, to govern, and to reign. It was an important responsibility that God gave humanity, and it was blessed. We've been talking a lot recently about Beyond Sunday. It's kind of a, a kind of summary and a word that Megan and I have kind of felt this is going to describe, and this is going to be the drive of our church over the next 12 months or so, Beyond Sunday. This idea that our faith is not just shallow and surface, but it affects every single area of our lives. It is certainly beyond the hour and a half we spend together on a Sunday morning. Our faith is beyond Sunday. That the Beyond Sunday also encapsulates that the mission that we have as a church and as individuals, it can't be accomplished just on a Sunday morning. But the mission that we carry, the, the responsibility that God has put upon us, it extends beyond Sunday to every realm of life, every place you will set your foot, that God has called us to make a difference. The mission statement we have here at the church is to lead individuals, to become faithful and effective followers of Jesus. If you've been a part of the church for a while, there's every chance you've heard this many, many times. One of the key words in there that I find so enticing and it just fills me with imagination is the word effective. The word effective, and it makes me think of being effective, is determined to make a difference. If we're going to be effective, if we're going to take the responsibility and the call that God has put on this church seriously, if we're going to live beyond Sunday so that we can see the gospel of Jesus change our community, we need to be determined to make a difference. This determination is an important factor. For us as a church, it may look like some parents, they decide to come check out our church on a Sunday morning. And the next thing you know, their high school students come to youth on a Wednesday night. And next week, the high school students bring in friends. It could be a young person coming to a 20s, 30s event. And then they bring a friend from college to church the next weekend. And the following weekend, the friend brings a friend. It could be a church member. He is about our Christmas or Easter services. And they invite a neighbor. And then the neighbor decides to invite the whole family. It just keeps going if we live with that determination to make a difference. There are some people who find themselves in churches because of their own curiosity and their own questions about faith and spirituality. But most often, the reason someone who doesn't normally go to church decides to come to church is because someone invited them. All across America, whenever statistics are taken, this is the number one reason someone will come to church that doesn't normally come to church, is that somebody has a determination to live beyond Sunday and invites them to church. And that is important. It's important. Pointing people to Jesus is important. It changes lives, it changes eternities. Meeting Jesus is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. To help others do the same is a privilege and a joy for all believers. The specific role we play can change, but however God is using you to point people to Jesus, never forget it's important. And from John's role model and John's example, we should be humble, but what we're doing is important. Humble, but important. John completed important work, but just because he was humble doesn't mean he just did something menial or inconsequential. What he did mattered. Staying humble doesn't mean doing unimportant things. From John's example, I would say being humble with a godly humility means doing extremely important things, but with a correct focus. I want to jump down to John chapter 3, starting in verse 22. 
Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went to the Judean countryside. Jesus spent some time with them there baptizing people. At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water there and people kept coming to him for baptism. This was before John was thrown into prison. A debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified the Messiah, is also baptizing people. And everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I'm not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. He has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth, and we speak of earthly things. But he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. He testifies by what he has seen and heard, but how few believe what he tells them. Anyone who accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true. For he is sent by God. He speaks only God's words, for God gives him the spirit without limit. The father loves his son and has put everything in his hands. And anyone who believes in God's son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the son will never experience eternal life, but remain under God's angry judgment. Let's remember those things that we see from John. He was humble, but confident. Humble, but active. Humble, but important. First thing, he was confident. John 3, 29, we just read, it is the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. John was confident, but he understood his place. He wasn't defeated because he would never get the spotlight. But because he had an appropriate confidence, he found joy in Jesus' success. He was glad to become less and less so Jesus could become greater and greater. Verse 23, we read about John being active. At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water there and people kept coming to him for baptism. I love that John chose to baptize where he did because of practical reasons. There was lots of water there. But John did not wait and sit on the sidelines. He got busy. He kept on going and people kept on coming to him to get baptized. I don't know how anyone could make a sensible argument that John the Baptist was lazy, docile, or inactive. But so often we assume that humble means getting out of the game. That's not what we see from John. And the third thing, being important, verse 28, you yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. I'm not the Messiah, but I'm not just spinning wheels. I'm not the Messiah, but I am preparing the way for him. John understood that what he did matters. It didn't matter as much as Jesus, but it had value. It made a difference. It impacted people's lives. The role of preparation mattered. And for you and for I, how can we grow in humility? Well, John had an unflinching awe and wonder of Jesus. Never forgot how amazing Jesus is. And by never forgetting just how wonderful he is, it helps us live out the definition of humility that I read earlier. That it's the personal quality of being free from arrogance and pride and having an accurate estimate of one's worth by keeping a focus on Jesus. 
fighting for the spotlight is ugly. We know this and we all agree with this because we find it ugly in others. And yet it's a lot harder to see in ourselves. Just try walking into a room and being a listener and see how uncomfortable you get when you don't pull any attention to yourself. Try and catch how you think about people. Do you automatically process what someone is saying and come to the conclusion that you know more, that you would have handled it better, that you would never be so stupid? That kind of thinking fuels pride and arrogance. Do you care too much about what people think about you? There's a fine line in this because I certainly don't think the answer is everyone being ridiculed and humiliated, but it's not everyone being socially paralyzed because we're terrified of what others think about us either. From John's example, true humility is finding confidence in Him. Looking for confidence in ourselves is drinking seawater. Our achievements will never stack up. The approval of our peers will never be sufficient. The adoration of the crowd or reaching celebrity status will never bring fulfillment like a confidence that is rooted and anchored in the Lord God Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. Our worth and our value is ascribed by the one who knit us together. Our confidence in what he's put in front of us comes by trusting him and living with a true obedience one foot after the other. Our humility, it doesn't take us out of the race, but it changes our perspective. Our actions, our efforts, what we're working towards, it's no longer just about us and our goals. We might be competitive, but we're determined to compete with honor and integrity. Too often the call to humility has left us feeling that we need to take a back seat and let others lead the way. I believe the complete opposite is true. We need more humble leaders, not less humble leaders. When have you heard anyone complain that their company or the government or their church or organization has too many humble leaders? Too many leaders that care about the well-being of their team members. Have you ever heard someone complaining that the people in charge are determined to live with honesty and integrity? Who's ever heard a complaint that all the executives at their company are too modest, that their executives refuse to boast or brag about their achievements? I've never heard anyone complain that their bosses are putting everyone at ease and that everyone relaxes when the boss walks in. Of course, the opposite is true. We hear complaints about a lack of humility within our leaders, that there's no concern for the team or for the people. There's no care about character or honesty, that too many leaders are boasting and being full of themselves, leaders that lead in a way and they put everyone on the edge. We cannot counteract this if we believe that being humble and having humility means taking ourselves out of the race. Leadership and positions of influence need more humble leaders. Just because we're living in a way that doesn't inflate our ego, it doesn't mean that what God's got in front of us is insignificant. Obedience in whatever God has put in front of you is important because it makes a difference in the lives of people. If you're unsure about how your day-to-day -day is important, ask the Lord, and I would also suggest asking the people closest to you. I believe that by praying and talking it through, you'll easily see in the big picture that what God has put in front of you is dramatically helping people. I had a friend of mine, I've shared this story before, I think, but it really gets my attention. I think it's good. A friend of mine, he's a pastor in Oregon. And when he went for a, the interview to go into his first pastoral position, he was working in construction at the time. And so as he sat and he did the interview with the church elders and the elders put to him the question of, are you ready to go into full-time ministry? To which point my friend put a said, hold on, you've got this backwards. I'm leaving full-time ministry to go into full-time church work. Because he got it. 
This is my mission field. This is where God has put me. This is church work. He got the vision. He got the point of the mission. John the Baptist, humble but confident. Humble but active. Humble but important. A couple of questions for you. If you're in the habit of writing notes, I'll ask you to go ahead and write these down and maybe have a chance this week to think about this and pray about this and maybe talk to someone about. The first one is this. How have you conflated being humble with being timid, passive, or unimportant? How have you conflated humble with being timid, passive, or unimportant? And the second thing, how would growing in bold humility make unexpected changes in your life? How would growing in bold humility, the kind of bold humility we see from John, make unexpected changes in your life? I'll read you a couple of verses that we read earlier on. John 3:35. The father loves his son and has put everything into his hands. And anyone who believes in God's son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. And what we just read there is no little roses. Without Jesus, we will never experience eternal life. Without Jesus, we'll have to face the consequences of our shortcomings, our imperfections, our mistakes, and our regrets. It's tragic, it's awful to think about, but the message of Jesus is good news, not bad news. With all this in mind, remember what we read in John 1. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. The current reality, the default for humanity is that we're lost and suffering the results of our own sinfulness. What's default is that we're deeply hurt and we're affected by the sin of others. Worst of all, our relationship with the holy and perfect God is broken and distant. We're living, running away from the Creator that loves us in an unimaginable way. Our eternity separated from Him is awful to think about. But Jesus came to change it all. That we could be found, not lost that he would pay the price on the cross and take on the sin of the world, including yours and mine, so we wouldn't have to experience the consequence of all the things we've done to push the Heavenly Father away. The forgiveness we can have in Jesus means our relationship with God can be healed and restored, that our eternity can be secure with him. The same message that John the Baptist wanted people to hear and believe is the same life-changing message of Jesus today. Now, before we close, I want to ask you, if you've never heard the message of Jesus before, this may be the very first time, I don't know. You may have heard it every week, but something today clicked. We've talked about John the Baptist and his humility and how he was all about pointing people to Jesus. He's pointing people to the Savior of the world, the one that can set us free, the one that can pay the price that separates us from God. If you believe that, it is worth putting your entire life in his hands. It is worth following Him with a lifelong commitment, following Him with no reservation. And if you've never made that decision before, or if you have, but you want to recommit that decision today, I would love to pray for you. So I want to ask everyone here, if you wouldn't mind just closing your eyes and bowing your heads, let's just give some discretion to everyone around you. 
But if you'd be honest and bold enough today to say, Tom, you know what? I'm not following God, but I want to start today. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he loves me. I'm done running away from God. I'm ready to start running to God. If that's you today, I promise I won't embarrass you, but I'd love to know who we're praying for. So if you wouldn't mind just putting your hand up a moment, just so I know who we're praying for. Amen. Thank you. Wonderful. Amen. Anybody else? Thank you. Tremendous. Amazing. Yes. Come on. Who else? Anybody else here today? I promise you're not going to do anything you're going to regret on the drive home. Amen. Thank you. Wonderful. Anybody else? When we pray in a moment, you'll be included when we pray together. Anybody else here today? Amen. Amen. Come on, Word of Life. Let's celebrate with people making the best decision today. Amazing. Amen. We're going to pray this prayer together. And we do this at the end of every service. The words are on the screen. I invite every person here to pray along. But if you're one of those people that put your hand up, pray this with extra. Pray this believing that this is a moment of life change for you. So come on, everybody. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, everybody, let's celebrate with people making the best decision today. Wonderful. Amen.